0: begin the internet a doorway to the world's most fascinating and most terrifying communities to explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds only some are brave enough to be called the the internet explorers Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Anderson Brothers, the Internet Explorers. My name is Evan Axel
1: Anderson, and I'm David Ryan Anderson, and I am your T1000. Oh, nice. I uh, I'm gonna be the little dog. Ro- you know those little yippy dog robot toys that they have in like the storefront, like the Windows and KB Toys. That's a they're very like, yip, specific. Yip, 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 and they flip over. They do a backflip. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna be. I, I do remember that. Wow, KB Toys. That was a while ago. Yeah, they're out of business now. Yeah. Rest in peace, Toys. But David, I bring
0: up robots for a very specific reason.
1: Oh, yeah? Do you know why? Uh, I'm sure it has nothing to do with our topic today.
0: Ha! You'd be wrong. Because today we are talking about robots. We're talking about Russian bots.
1: Russians invented the word robot, didn't they?
0: Uh, I think it's it's some kind of Eastern European language. Um, but no, we're, we're talking about sort of the impact that russian bots and sort of russian cyber warfare is having on not only american politics but also on just sort of world events
1: okay right
0: but today is particularly special because i brought somebody with me today is it a robot he's he's not a robot he is a he he is a meat and bones and brains person that's a weird way of describing a person (laughs) he's a real boy he's a real boy um he is my friend from college, Tim Wiley. Tim, why don't you introduce yourself? You've been so quiet this whole time. You know, I like to think of myself as Iron Giant.
1: Oh. Are we talking real Iron Giant? Real like, Iron I Giant. I am not a gun. Or are we talking Ready Player One Iron Giant, where he's like, laser I am, everybody. I, it, I am a real gun. Real
2: Iron Giant. I once had a lizard named after the Iron Giant. <laughs> we? I was seven years old. You had a lizard named Iron Giant? Yes. I love that.
0: That's awesome. <laughs> that's what kind of cool. lizard?
2: Uh, Oh, it was some kind of gecko it's okay change between brown and green its tail would fall off if you grabbed it by the tail <laughs> how often do you do that
0: was <laughs> like, a great trick i do every day
2: <laughs> i was not very vested in
1: this lizard what else what i'm saying <laughs> I, I love the f- i just can't get over the fact you named him the iron giant that's that's
0: amazing i love that that's we beautiful.
1: had we had a hamster named after um runaway ralph the mouse in the motorcycle oh yeah if you remember that that hamster <laughs> died in our basement <laughs> Because it turned out I was allergic to the hamster, and my parents put it in the basement to be like, okay, well maybe David will get better. And uh, one day I was like, guys, I'm feeling fine, can we bring my hamster back? And my parents were like, oh, oh, we gave that hamster away, and <laughs> I found out later, they just forgot about it. It was dead. <laughs>
0: gave the hamster to the sewer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. Anyway, our parents are very different people now.
0: I was gonna say, we. I think our family was notoriously bad with pets.
1: Yeah, but we're not here to talk about (laughs) all the animals we murdered.
0: Five minutes into the podcast, we're already off on quite the tangent.
1: Tim, you are Evan's friend, but unfortunately, you are not yet my friend. So for my sake and for the sake of all of our listeners at home, uh, would you mind just letting us know who are you? What are you about? What are you here to talk to us about today? Um, yeah, what's going on with you? Sure.
2: Uh, thank you for having me. Um, yeah. I graduated from Cornell College with Evan in 2016. My degrees were in international relations and history. And then I went to get a master's degree from Aberystwyth University in Aberystwyth Wales, the oldest international relations grad school in the world, oh. uh, with a degree in intelligence and strategic studies. And uh, I speak some Russian. I've studied Russia for a long time. And uh, I'm here to talk about... You know, The intelligence behind what they do, their the strategic reasons why they do it, and just to give a political analysis on Russia. The
0: institution Tim comes from is old, but all the takes are fresh hot out of the oven. (laughs) Fresh hot. (laughs) Yeah. They're hot and fresh and new takes. Pipe and hot. Pipe and hot takes.
1: All right. So basically what's going on here is we in America had an election a few years ago, and there's been a lot of speculation about what influence, if any, the Russian government has had on that election. Hmm. And this takes a lot of different forms, potentially hacking voting machines, potentially trying to influence politicians through blackmail. This could take the form of uh, going online, creating fake accounts or fake sort of uh, social media pages, Facebook pages, Twitter accounts, and trying to develop sort of like a, a fake grassroots, I guess they call it Afro uh, astroturfing? Yeah, yeah. Like a fake grassroots movement to just latch on with uh, American voters to try to influence their voting habits. Like, there's a lot of different things going on. And we know for a fact that Russia has actually influenced other nations. Yeah, since the, really
2: since Putin has come to power in 2000, it's been quite prevalent. And back in the Cold War days, the U.S. and the USSR were trying to influence elections for their own reasons, but uh, particularly with the advent of the internet and things, there's been a new, a new wave of election
0: interference and things like that. Now, this isn't something that is unique specifically to Russia, right? I mean, plenty of governments do this. I mean, the United yeah, States, you just said the U.S. did it. Right. You know.
2: Yeah. This itself is not new. Just how it's being done is new. And compared to the old ways of doing it, there were ways to counteract it. But with these new methods, there's no tried and true tested method that is known to work to combat this. And that's what, how the State Department and you know other agencies within the U.S. government and foreign governments as well are struggling
0: to combat this and i think it's also kind of novel in the us to even think about these sorts of uh operations is because i don't think it's ever happened to the us i think the us is engaged in mm-hmm. sort of altering political events around the world but i don't think it's we've ever been on the receiving end as far as i think the public knows
1: is that i mean is that true to your knowledge is that that the us has not actually been on the receiving end of stuff like that successful attempts mm-hmm. I, I would
2: assume no oh. one. You know, depending on how you want to argue it, until 2016, or you know, maybe midterm elections depending on, or specific races for House or Senate seats. You know, I, I can't speak to that particularly, but
1: um, you know, none that I know of b- before 2016. Sure. Okay, so here's something that is really striking to me about all of this is that why does it seem like there was such a massive turning point all of a sudden? in 2016 or maybe the few years like leading up to the election really where all of a sudden you see like so many of these different things that i was listing are all being pushed by russia all at once like what is it something in American politics that changed? Is it something in Russian uh, uh, espionage that's changed or the availability or like... Or, or is even our, our perception, have those things been
0: happening and we're just now noticing all of these things?
1: Right. Yeah. That's like, like, like have we just been ignorant or something? I think it's a combination of the, of the three. So, you know, in the
2: 2000s, we really see in U.S. politics a uh, splintering... Along party lines, particularly Republican and Democrat, and particularly within the Obama presidential administration, you see very little bipartisan uh, work between the two parties to get things done. And politically, things become very fractured. You know, the regular order doesn't really uh, exist much in the Senate anymore. All that comes about to the 2016 election. You know, which way do we go? Do we continue down? You know the legacy of Barack Obama, or, you know, there's a large portion of the country that wanted to change that. And it also happened to coincide with the perfection from the Russian perspective of all of their social media influence and things like that. The beginnings of that date well into the Cold War, but under Vladimir Putin, very soon after his election... It started in
1: South Ossetia, Georgia, in two thousand two. This is not this is not the state of Georgia in the United States. Correct this is for our listeners. Yeah,
0: uh, everybody, everybody loves that part of the state of Georgia, <laughs> South
2: Ossetia. <laughs> it's the the country uh, in international relation terms. It's referred to as a state, but South Ossetia was and is a self autonomous region in the in the country of Georgia. That borders with Russia. And in the 90s, Russia and Georgia were basically at war over this region as to whether South Ossetia would be in Georgia after they seceded from the USSR or would be part of Russia. So in 2001, Russia, led by Putin, helped uh, elect a pro-Russian leader of South Ossetia who went away from pro-Georgian relations towards pro-Russian relations. Political confrontation happened throughout the next several years, and it all came to a head in 2008 uh, right around the Olympics, actually, when there were South Ossetian separatists were bombing Georgian villages. Georgian army moved in to, the, to South Ossetia. Russia said that they, Georgia violated a, ce- a ceasefire agreement from the 90s, and Russia sent in almost 100,000 troops into South Ossetia. And there was a war for a couple of weeks. And this was happening right as the Olympics was starting. So that was the first real instance of modern Russia interfering in a state's domestic affairs, And this was seen again in 2014 in Ukraine. And that's where you really see a lot of the online social media aspects of it come in. And that's where they came very close to perfecting it. In 2016 was where it was perfected and successfully completed uh, with the U.S. elections. It was attempted in other elections like in France, in the Netherlands, and other EU countries. uh, Particularly, there's been a lot of influence in Hungary where it seems to have worked. But Hungary has always been a rather authoritarian leaning country anyways so uh, that's where kind of all that comes in from the Russian perspective and uh, Evan what was the third the third aspect that you'd mentioned oh yeah whether
1: we just yeah whether we were just ignorant of it or something right
0: we're we're American viewers who are now sort of seeing the effects of a Russian political disinformation campaign I, I don't know what we might actually call this but Russian involvement in American politics is this so novel to American viewers that we just are seeing it for the first time, so we don't even have any perception of how these sorts of processes work?
2: Yeah, I think, and I said earlier, it's a combination of all three. So I think, you know, some people in the U.S. were aware of it. Some weren't. A big part of the 2012 election was Mitt Romney saying that, you know, Russia is a rising threat, and you know people on the left were saying, no, we have this rapprochement between us and the Russians that we're trying to do, and, you know... Did we get hoodwinked? We very well may have.
1: So what we've got, from from what I understand, that Russia's been putting out their feelers since, since 2014 and a little bit earlier to start trying to see if they can influence voters or get uh, people's attention. So, for example, we know that Facebook has announced that there have been you know several hundred Facebook pages and accounts that they know Russia has created if they can get voters attention then at that point they can start to feed in messages or little seeds that can then sprout just among among their audience and then they'll they'll take hold of it and go and okay here's the crazy thing about this hmm. is that the russian accounts seem to be just way more popular than the actual accounts that they're parodying and I don't under, so uh, a few examples are, there's a, the Blacktivist Facebook group, which is sort of a, a Black Lives Matter type right. of thing, which has more followers on Facebook than the actual Black Lives Matter Facebook the page, Facebook the page, actual yeah. official page, which is crazy. You can see examples of um, these puppet Russian accounts for like various American political issues, like they're trying to instill these centers where people can come to talk about their problems, So I guess, so they can control the dialogue that's happening there. Like why, why are the Russians so much better at creating hubs for people to come together than the Americans are? Like, like the people who actually stand for these issues, why are they worse than the Russians are?
0: Is it, is it because, you know, the Russians are like, this is like a centralized, organized sort of like plan to set things up as opposed to like people just doing it of their own volition? Tim. Yeah, so answer our question. <laughs> so a lot <laughs> help of this
2: us, help us. is coming from Russian troll farms. So uh, what troll farms are is that the Russian uh, somewhere from the Russian government, don't know, I don't know what agency it is very well could be the FSB, the the you know Russian equivalent of the KGB from the Soviet Union. They hire people who sp- who speak fluent American English to set up these troll farms so they create the page blacktivist or the 10 the the 10gop and then within these troll farms and they get budgets of upwards of a million dollars a month to do to do all this so they create tens of thousands of fake twitter profiles and then with a, a lot of their advertising money they advertise and get actual followers so this is how they end up with more followers than the actual black lives matter movement is because they get you know Maybe 75% of, you know, the amount of real people that
1: Black Lives Matter has, but then
2: they have tens of thousands of bots to come in and also do it.
1: Oh, wait, I'm sorry. So you're saying that a lot of the people who follow these accounts are also Trolls. fake, like they are not actual followers?
2: Yeah. These accounts have both real followers and bot followers. Right. Sure. And the, the, bot, the bots are responsible for doing a certain number of retweets per day, certain number of original tweets per day and I sent something to Evan. And it's just a matter of finding it here where I'm going to pull it up now. On Twitter? Yeah. I, see that's a I purposely <laughs> sent it to you on Twitter because I know we don't talk via Twitter a lot. <laughs> so
0: um, I, I have a Twitter account. I like rarely ever go on it. Yeah. So I've
2: noticed I've tweeted you a lot of things too. So <laughs> I can, I, I can show this to you. They'll obviously tw- tweet and retweet from different perspectives, but they'll all say the exact same thing. I'm going to, and there's f- like four or five different Twitter yes. bots right there. All the exact same oh. message, copy and paste and same hashtags and everything. And like, you know, you look at a page and like, oh, there's, there's no pictures of any actual person. It's all retweets. It's probably a Russian bot, but these have actual people as the profile pictures. And so they're very advanced and sophisticated bots. So they kind of have different levels of bots.
1: Yeah, so these are really sophisticated puppet accounts that they've got going on. Yeah. And and, and just to clarify, part of the reason that it's important to retweet one another's content is that the algorithms on social media will then consider it more valuable. Yeah. Right? And then it will show it to more people.
0: It's just taking advantage of already existing systems and saying, you know, like things like Twitter and Facebook, these already work a certain manner. We'll just turn these into political weapons, essentially.
2: Another way that, like, the Information is disseminated. Is that the bots will take a hashtag from an actual discussion? The most recent big one is hashtag release the memo when yes. Devin Nunes, you know, releasing all that memo stuff. So he put out hashtag release the memo, and then you know, he may or may not be involved with Rajan, who knows? It doesn't really matter to this point. Is that all of the bots then took. Hashtag release the memo because it was
1: already trending and then they just threw all sorts of information on it. It's interesting. Oh, okay, so like the, the release the memo hashtag, that was like number one on Twitter at like 3 a.m. or something. Yeah, because he tweeted it at like 10 p.m. Californian time. So, you know, 1 a.m. out in the East. Yeah. And that tends to happen where I feel like if things get very prominent in the middle of the night, it's like, Okay, that's very suspicious. No way well, is the well, entire American where is it? Populace... It's, early mar-
2: it's early morning on those Russian troll farms. I was going to say, where is so? it daytime
0: <laughs> for the Russians? <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was about
2: 8,
1: uh, between 8 and 10 p.m., depending on where in Russia these troll farms are. Yeah. So. There you go. But, yeah, no, they do things besides, I mean, they do things that are even less overtly, like, sort of in their interest, like uh, a lot of NRA. I wish I could remember the hashtags off the top of my head, but there's lots of, like, pro-NRA hashtags that have been tracked to uh, Russian troll farms, we like
2: in stories about the kids from Stoneman Douglas being yes, uh,
1: you know like 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 F, like working for the FBI or whatever. Yeah, and uh, paid oh. being paid actors, Some just things, like Alex like Jones kind of stuff. Yeah. Basically. Oh.
0: yeah, okay, Alex Jones. Yeah, so we
1: got <laughs> oh yeah, we have him. You're in good company. Yeah, the 9 11 <laughs> episode we talk about him a lot. So in that case, what it seems to me like is that. I don't know exactly the motivation behind promoting hashtags like that or stories like that, but it almost feels like the most divisive political issues at that moment, the Russians will be there to fan the flames.
2: That's both the goal and the method of creating confusion over what the truth is, whether which viewpoint is the right viewpoint, which goes towards the truth again, and just, you know, bides time to slow the U.S. down and to get caught up in its own gears while Russia can do what it wants on the political and international mili- militaristic stage. A lot of what Russia is doing, and it's very uh, similar to what they would do back when the Soviet Union was in power, was that they put so much information out there. And um, there's an article from 2014 by the Rand Corporation, and they call it, it's called the firehose effect. You put so much information out there that it's hard to keep up with what's going on. People become sick and tired of everything, so they just kind of stop tuning in to what's going on. All the meanwhile, Russia is doing things on the international stage, such as go back to their their invasion of South Ossetia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2014. The Olympics are going on. People are focused on the Olympics.
1: Yeah, and I remember that being brought up even at the time. Like the timing of when they were going to invade uh, Ukraine was. It was f- six days after the end of the Olympics. Yeah, interesting. I mean, and you know, so, and now you've,
2: you've had two whole podcasts, about, episodes about it. Is Syria. Russia's very involved in Syria. Syria gives them a port on the Mediterranean Sea, which has been a goal of the Russian state since the 1700s. They have an iron grip over Syria, and with veto power in the UN, nothing can be done together uh, internationally. They're kind of letting us implode upon ourselves They're expanding their influence and power on the global international stage.
0: But it seems interesting because a lot of the things you're talking about are not only sort of trying to pull, you know, pull the wool over people's eyes, but also just generally trying to confuse people. So like one of the things that confused me um, just sort of following the news um, was I forget when this was, but I remember the Russians were making a big deal of we're pulling out of Syria And they had, like, this concert in, like, Palmyra where they were celebrating, like, ah, good job, everybody. (laughs) And it's like, oh, I guess Russia has left Syria. But it's like, oh, well, no. So there's, like, sort of this interesting element of Russian disinformation that has to do with just simply just confusing people about what is really actually going on in the world.
2: Yeah, so the modus operandi for that is people claim something happened, Russia did something they will deny 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 a junior official somewhere will say oh yeah we actually did that a couple days later that junior official is fired and they go back to deny 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 and so people hear them denying it but then a, a large amount of people hear well this official said that they actually did it and so it creates this all it creates this confusion and well who's to say what the truth is anymore interesting right?
0: just producing exhaustion from sheer convolutedness. Yeah.
1: Okay, so there's a term that I heard recently that I really love, and it's called the Wilderness of Mirrors. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's a little bit dramatic, I guess, but I really like it. And what it refers to is this idea of placing real information out there, enough truth out there that people are able to sort of bite, like they accept it, but then mix in a lot of lie or half-truth or whatever you've got going on. Like, like whatever you need. And your ability to lie or bend the truth, it, it, that requires so much less energy than it does to sift what is true and what is false. And you're not just identifying a fake story versus a true story. You're actually parsing out like line by line what is fake and what is true. And when you've got – when basically all of your information is being filtered through you know, just a level of lies and, and, and you know half-truths and things, it's just too much effort for a civilian population to do that anymore and you're either going to go one way or another of like well we're just going to be generally accepting that this is probably true or generally accepting that this is probably all lies and i don't know if we can say that you know the as americans that that's what we're experiencing right now but it kind of feels like that's what we're experiencing right now in America. I
0: mean, it's it's Orwellian, isn't it?
1: Because yeah, right.
0: essentially, I mean, we were talking about this a Welcome to while Tiny ago. Train
1: Town. <laughs> tiny Train Town. We,
0: we were talking about um, sort of how, even in conspiracy theories, there's sort of this sense that, like, there's a big lie that the government's telling you, and that is just sort of keep people confused. But here we literally have a government that is basically peddling lies just to kind of keep people confused about what's actually happening it isn't as big as were we at war with east asia or with eurasia it's like uh, you know it's it's but it's just little things i think the most popular example of this from the 2016 election with the wilderness of mirrors it's one of breitbart's
2: most viewed news stories of all time scare quotes is (laughs) that the pope has refused to endorse hillary trump or oh my gosh (laughs) Future David, <laughs> Bernie- <laughs> edit this in post. The- Ber- if Bernie Rose have found their <laughs> true enemy, <laughs> Hillary Trump. <laughs> all right. And I'm pretty sure that this is Breitbart's most viewed news story of all time. Scare it- quotes. Is that the Pope refuses to endorse Hillary Clinton. Mm. There's, a, there's a pretty big grain of truth in that. The Pope does not endorse anyone in any right. election ever. Because the Pope just doesn't do that. Yeah. So it's leading people... Well, he refused to endorse Hillary. He he must be... There,
0: therefore, he's endorsing Trump. Let's vote for Donald Trump. But isn't the Pope like the Antichrist? Like, isn't that a big concern for these part people?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's... Whenever it's convenient to complain about the Pope, yeah. you do that.
0: So... At what level does this sort of idea of, we're talking about wilderness of mirrors and we're just talking about sort of this Orwellian sense of trying to warp what people perceive about the world to sort of create a new image of the world. And to what extent does this actually affect Russian, you know, domestic politics? Is this something that Putin does within his own country? Is that where he got this idea from? You know, where where does this idea about distorting the truth sort of even come from? That is a very
2: good question. I would say that there there's a bit of it within Russian domestic politics in the sense that um, a, a big example of it is, I don't know if you guys know him, uh, Bill Browder. He was a venture capitalist in Russia in the 1990s, and uh, he recently wrote a book called Red Notice, and it was about how... He's, you know, been banned from Russia and for all of the, all of these things. What ended up happening is that he, his venture capitalist firm, and his lawyers discovered billions and billions of dollars being embezzled by Russian oligarchs. And instead of Putin going after these oligarchs because all the oligarchs are in his back pocket, he and the FSB turned it around and said that Bill Browder and his lawyer Sergei Magnitsky were the ones who actually embezzled like millions of these dollars. And so Bill Browder was expelled from Russia. Sergei Magnitsky wouldn't leave Russia because it was, you know, the only place that he'd ever known. And he wanted to, he believed in justice and the truth of law and eventually was arrested and tortured to death. And they've come out and claimed that Bill Browder murdered Sergei Magnitsky, that Magnitsky was never in jail and all this kind of thing. By putting out all these different confusing stories... I could believe Bill Browder and have my government hate me, or you know, and just go along with this and be fine with it and not go to jail. And so, a lot of it is because Russia is such a uh, brutal and authoritarian state that people in survivalist mode will just go along with it. No, that
1: goes that goes towards the clouding of the truth that you were talking about. Yeah. All right. I would like to pivot a little bit into. There's a lot of talk about Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. My position on that is, like, uh, I'm going to wait and see whether, like... I mean like you, you had even mentioned it before, Tim, that we don't know if anybody on Trump's side was actively working with the Russians. Yeah, w- whether they were actively working with them,
2: whether some of them, such as George Papadopoulos, were not clever enough to realize that they were being used as a pawn yeah, by Russian FSB yeah. agents... And, you know, but whether he knew it or not, you know, he was committing, if if he was doing what, you know, some people are saying he was doing, that it is a crime, no matter,
1: intent has no bearing on a lot of crimes. Sure. So I get, the reason I bring this up is because regardless of whether or not, the collusion is a part of this. I'm I'm kind of I'm less interested in that, to be honest. What I'm more interested in is where do we go from here with this kind of information? Like, now that we know the tactics that Russia is willing to use, they're varied. There's a lot of them. We know what their goals are, generally. And we know that they're already at work performing these things. So where do we, like, as America, as the United States, like, where do we go from here? Like, is it about... I mean, you know, like sanctions on Russia or something. I mean, calling it out seems like a very important first step, but sure. that can't be the final step. It's it's such a good question
2: because no one really knows. Yeah. Oh, it's no. such a good question
0: because I don't really have oh, an no. answer. So,
2: I, I mean, there are...
0: Here's the thing. When you were asking a question, I was like, oh, man, I don't even... I
1: can't even... I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. No, Tim knows more on the topic than I do. <laughs> Tim but... will know. <laughs> Ask Tim. <laughs> but that's important, though, to get your perspective. I mean, yeah, no, the yeah.
2: fact that it's not... And, thing. and there there are multiple ways you can, we can try and go about it. We can try and curtail the Russian bots themselves. I've referenced a RAN article from 2014 about how Russia does this, and they call it the firehose of falsehood. They say, from the article here, Propagandists gain advantage by offering the first impression, which is hard to overcome. However, potential audiences have already been primed with correct information, Disinformation finds itself in the same role as a retraction or refutation, and it's disadvantaged and relative to what's already known. So, you know, people have to come together and say, this is what the truth is. And from an American political perspective is to have both parties currently come together and do that. They also say that when people resist persuasion or influence, uh, the act reinforces their pre-existing beliefs. And it may be more productive to highlight the ways in which Russian propagandists attempt to manipulate audiences rather than fighting for the specific manipulation. So making people aware this is how they are trying to get you to believe what they want you to believe. That's what they're proposing to do against the individual bots and the mistruths that are being put out there. How to get Russia to stop this? Sanctions work and don't work in some cases. A lot of it could be having to change Russia. Russian politics and calling a good old for Russian re- deposition calling, <laughs> calling for <laughs> regime change. change in Russia is a hell of a thing to call for yeah. and you know, but <laughs> something would have That's to change Russia. and you know currently Putin has set up has amended the Russian Constitution so that he basically will be president or prime minister for life you know because he he he's changed the Russian Constitution you can only be elected two terms in a row but he just has to find a crony to be you know, his, his president for, it was four years with Medvedev. It's I was going to say, that's basically six, what Medvedev's entire yeah, it's career now six was. Years, but Medvedev is now on the outs because he wanted to do different things with the Obama administration uh-huh. that Putin did not want to do. And so I think Medvedev is, I don't think he's still technically the prime minister, but he's not going to be around for too much longer unless things, unless things change internally between the two of them. Um, I, don't, I don't think they will. We might be seeing this for the foreseeable future, and a lot of it's based on Russian domestic politics, too.
1: I, I for one, am very paranoid about the fragility of truth or something, or at least the fragility of being able to say what is true. I like what you're talking about, about the importance of first impressions, the importance of sort of a unified message. I know that that, to some people, sounds very creepy, the idea of, Let's all get together and agree on what the truth is. Sounds uh, wrong, but but that's something I I think people do sort of in
0: sort of instinctually anyway. Like people come to. I mean, what's the point of a podcast like this if it isn't us trying to discuss like what is even going on in the world and forming an idea of what is going on, and then that is the truth essentially.
1: But uh, what I mean though is more on like like Tim was saying, both sides. Like Democrats and Republicans or whoever we, you know, whatever parties we have in ten years, agreeing on some some universal truths about what is going on in the world and how to be thinking about it correctly. Yeah, like the idea of that being not mandated, but but sort of like to have that coming from on high seems a little creepy. I think yeah. to most people, and that, I mean, that even to me that seems a little creepy. But I also am not sure what an alternative is.
0: I think. I mean, I think it's just generally i I don't see it quite as creepy as much as I see it as that's a it's something that isn't necessarily like politicians have to necessarily come to that conclusion. People across the aisle sort of rank and file individuals like people in the streets need to be able to agree on what's happening
1: sure okay. and I
0: think that comes that comes from uh making the issues less partisan. I don't know how you'd go about doing that you disaggregating that um. But I think sort of reducing the partisanness of it will reduce how knee-jerk people react to these kinds of issues, you know. And I think also it requires that we sort of – we become better at training online citizenship for people, yeah. how how to behave on the internet. Because I think, you know, whenever we talk about these groups on the internet, I feel like a big thing that always hits me is how how people act in bad faith on the internet so often and that that that, really is
1: the whole point of this podcast to a certain degree is teaching people how to live yeah. In this world that we've all been living in, but we don't actually know. <laughs> like, so basically, the solution is
0: listen to our podcast. To our if you podcast. listen to our podcast, you'll know exactly when Russians are lying That's the know. answer, right, Tim? Or when Stephen, yeah. you know, Stephen Molyneux is just being an <laughs> idiot and things like that. You know,
1: Solving the world's problems. Resident expert Tim Wiley says listen to our podcast. <laughs> That's, That's the solution.
0: Hey, all right. So there is – well, Stefan gave us a recommendation, right?
1: That's two experts. Two experts <laughs> telling us, hey, David and Evan, they know what's up. No, I agree, though. Yeah, the idea of, of how to be a, an online citizen. I I maybe have misplaced faith in future generations for just needing to be more aware of these things, and this is just something that kind of comes with the territory of, like, we're literally living in, like, a whole other universe on the side. I'm well, hoping.
0: I don't think it's necessarily naive. I think it's more just that that process is really messy. Yeah. If, if it does occur, like, you just say, listen, let people go on the internet and things will sort themselves out. I mean, like... In history, we've done that plenty of times, and, you know, like, people, like, die, and, like, there's, like, tyranny and things like that. Tim's giving me a look of, like, God, that's an awful-sounding thing you're just describing right now. But, I mean, the idea <laughs> is that, like, I don't know. You can—I think it is possible to say future generations will understand how to use the Internet use the internet better, but it will be through trial and error, Yeah,
1: there's going to be a lot of fatalities for us. Yeah, <laughs>
0: fatalities not necessarily—maybe— I mean, maybe possibly like actual people, but like, you know, fatalities in terms of like our understanding of what the truth is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're, if we're not careful about it, that sort of thing would have to be very heavily rehabbed from maybe like a century of just misuse. Unless we do, we're, you know, we are smart about teaching, you know, future generations about how to be good citizens on the internet.
1: Here's a real example of ways that this stuff gets partisanized that I think um, we need to learn from. Partisan? Partisan? I'm not an English major. I don't know. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> uh, sorry. So my example is uh, so Twitter when they crack down on these bot accounts that Tim was talking about, where they just you know kind of repeat the same, the same similar points or hashtags or whatever it is. Yeah. Twitter cracked down on these accounts one day and literally overnight, tens of thousands of these things were gone. I mean, like, probably more. We don't know exactly how many of these accounts were were eliminated all of a sudden. But a thing that happened is that a lot of very conservative Twitter accounts suddenly lost tens of thousands of followers overnight. And these entire sort of communities evaporated, or at least large parts of them evaporated. Poor-baked Alaska. Yeah, large parts of these communities evaporated overnight. And these people took it very personally that their communities were being attacked. And it's like, no, your communities were not being attacked. They're being infiltrated. Your communities were attacked. (laughs) Your communities were already being attacked. We (laughs) removed the attackers, but they took it as like this idea that you're saying that our people and our like who were propagating our messages, you know, our, our people and our messages are illegitimate. And whether or not you believe that that is true, I think that you have to agree that well to us i mean like these people were illegitimate to a certain degree like you can't take that personally that we're exposing what is fake and what is not fake now on the other side of that there are a lot of liberals who are taking this as an opportunity to just dunk on the conservatives and be like look at that you're idiots because you fell for the russian stuff isn't this hilarious and while i i was very pleased to see that these accounts were removed yeah I could also realize that just making fun of the people who had them as followers or who were taking it personally, like, I don't think that was achieving anything to do that, and I don't know if this, is, if this is a good example of ways that we can de-partisanize or whatever, like this whole thing, being able to recognize truth from fiction. But I do think there's something to that of trying to invite people to say, like, like we're really trying to get to the bottom of something here that is very important, regardless of what you believe. If it turned out that you were fooled by some of these people, like, let's, let's extend some kind of grace for that. Like, sure. isn't it great that we were able to identify who those people were, at least a, a, an amount of them?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, we have lost the ability to be civil when discussing opposing viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And whenever you're trying to discuss with somebody on the complete opposite end of the spectrum with you, a lot of people take it as you're attacking me personally rather than the position that you hold. An example that's used a lot is, you know, getting away from bots and Russian things, but a lot is when people discuss issues of religion, particularly within the U.S., the big one is abortion. They instantly view a debate on abortion as an attack on their religion, and then they get very angry and start to lose some of the logic that they can hold in discussion of that topic. Everyone needs to come together and just be more civil. And... Respect opposing viewpoints to an extent, and not be so, and not feel so attacked at the same time. You know, these bots aren't just on the right; they're they're on the left as well. And we talked about the Black page. You know, bots are very interesting in the sense that a lot of countries, states use them. Uh, Justin Trudeau, on a couple months ago, was on David Axelrod's uh, podcast for the U- University of Chicago Politics Department. And very casually mentioned the fact that at some point, uh, couple, several years ago, in Canadian politics, they were talking about LGBT rights and things like that. And Trudeau mentioned noticed that there was a lot of anti-LGBTQ um, talk from bots on Twitter, and so he casually, very casually said, "So I went and talked to a minister, and we talked about getting pro-LGBT bots on Twitter." Like, wait, what?
0: You that's know, creepy, interesting. interesting.
2: Yeah, that, that's an interesting way of fighting that. So <laughs> we you know, we I, troll back. I I don't know if they. <laughs> I don't know if they went through with it, but at the very least at very high levels in the Canadian government it was discussed. Yeah.
0: I mean, I mean we're talking about sort of like how, oh yeah, interfering with other governments like politics, it's just you end up getting bit back by those things. Is this sort of idea of like the will the US at some point start creating troll farms to mess with other countries, you know? That's a that's a creepy thing to think
1: about, especially cuz the hashtag is meant to be a way to find out what the people are thinking at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a pulse of, of just the entire site. To think that, like, in five years, people will be like, oh, hashtags. Yeah, those are, like, basically, like, commercials that people pay for, that, like, to, to promote or something.
0: Or or even you, you start to think of Twitter as, oh, yeah, that's the propaganda website of the Canadian yeah. or whatever government, you know? Yeah. I think sort of in passing you sort of brought up an idea that i think also might be important is that twitter was able to crack down on bots yeah just the the when we're talking about sort of digital citizenship i know we're talking about sort of individuals but also we have to be able to say to people who provide the air we're, we're providing the sort of spaces where these conversations are happening we have to say you know you have to be able to police not not even the language because i think people start to think sort of like you were saying that you know you delete all of these followers of mine you're policing my speech mm-hmm. but rather you're trying to police a very specific thing which is that you want actual human bodies being represented and actual people as opposed to someone wielding um a disproportionate amount of power and voice just because you know they're willing to produce a bunch of troll accounts essentially
1: yeah and i mean that i again i we keep referencing a bunch of old episodes this episode but when do you we remember talking... that time you were telling me about all of the life hacks? That was pretty funny. Wow. I forgot about the life hacks episode. I <laughs> uh, We've come so far since then. In the Syria episodes, we were talking about this idea that even a dictator has to bow to the rules of social media, which is so crazy. Yeah. but on, But they only have to do that if the social media platform makes them. Sure. And if social media like if if Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whoever we're, we have in ten years, if they're not willing to do the work of saying like there's real life happening here and we have to make sure that it's not being manipulated on our watch, I mean, they have to step in and do those things. And this is an instance of Twitter doing that, Facebook says that they're doing it. they're a lot they they're very private about what's going on. I know they've deleted a lot of accounts and right. they, I mean, you know, we're working this stuff out as a society, how this is going to work but there is a lot of power in these same these same platforms that are being used against us there's a lot of power there to contain these you know these forces that are it's insane that they have to that they have to be contained by a website or yeah. something like that
0: i mean it just goes to show what power the internet has now and that's why these sorts of discussions are so incredibly important
1: and maybe in maybe in 5 years we're going to be having discussions about the way that king you know president zuckerberg is misusing his authority (laughs) king zuckerberg i mean zuckerberg is he's he's prepping to or he was at least he was getting ready to run for president yeah
0: he, that, that would be quite a step backwards. It's like we're trying to move forward in sort of these discussions. If we have to talk about why authoritarianism is bad, I think we've ma- taken a step back.
1: Yeah. We're, okay. So we're, we're, we're taking this one step at a time. We're really trying to parse this stuff out. But this is also like something you were telling me, Evan, where we're just so bad at figuring out what's going to happen in five years. Yeah. We don't even know how to plan for society, like even as, like as a government, as people. At this point, yeah, we're
0: just, I mean, as governments and as people, we're just looking for stability and, like, I don't know, just trying to just understand the ramifications of things that are happening right now that we can't even plot the future. Which is why, I mean, here's the thing. We're talking about, yeah, there are bots on left and right. Isn't I mean, that just makes so much sense based on this sort of idea of how this works, right? The idea of you're just trying to sow dissent within the electorate. Yeah, You're just saying, like you know uh, the russians you know and this is entirely a speculation at this point the russians might say like everybody oh hillary clinton is going to win who do we put unleash our bot armies on we unleash it on hillary and then yeah, they they weren't say, all
2: necessarily pro trump it was just anti hillary for, exactly. for the most part
0: yeah it could know? be it could be like from a you know sort of a left Position, so you're trying to grab up, you know, Bernie Bros who are upset or, about or what Jill St- or Jill
2: Stein voters,
0: Jill Stein, Jill Stein voters, people who are you know upset about you know the Democratic primary. Stein teams. stands, Stein stands. That's what we call well, them. The, I think Bernie Bros, Stein stands. I think and an
2: important point to the 2016 election itself is you know there's some te- technically there's some investigation into Jill Stein as well because the because right. the big the big thing that Michael Flynn got in trouble for was meeting with. Russian, Russian official, literally, literally sitting next to them at high-profile like state dinners when he wasn't in an official capacity except for working in the Trump campaign. Jill Stein was sitting next to Michael Flynn, and yeah. and, so, you know, and she's refusing to answer Senate committee questions about it, but in the three states that turned the 2016 election, so Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, the margin of victory for Trump was less than half the vote that Jill Stein got in all of those states. Interesting. So, you know, it might not personally, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff going on on the, on the Trump end of things. But if Mueller finds that none of that actually, you know, none of that happened or came to fruition or whatever, you know, what it, well, there's also this that could have happened. When, you know, there's there's 50, there's 50 million different things that all happened. And like you said in the Cambridge Analytica episode, the margin for error was so small.
0: Yeah. You know, and it all just happened to come together, what what are the odds? I mean, it's so hard to measure exactly what kind of, like, to quantify the effect that this sort of campaign had, right? Because it's, we're saying, like, yeah, you know, Jill Stein voters in these particular states, you know, it might have tipped it one way or another for the election. I, I even think that that is sort of secondary to the question of you know, Did the Russians think like, oh, and we're going to get in these states uh, Jill Stein voters and they're going to upset it for Hillary? Right, I don't yeah, think yeah. the point was to make <laughs> Hillary lose necessarily. Yeah, I, think, I think it was just to get people divided mm-hmm. on the issues because I don't think uh, – I mean we were talking about how partisanship is ultimately the biggest issue for the United States in terms of being able to identify actual problems on the world stage. We get too wrapped up in, you know, local politics or, I guess, national politics.
1: Well, another casualty of all of this is just our faith in institutions. Whether it's the media or political institutions or even, like, smaller institutions like, I mean, like, we're talking about, like, Black Lives Matter, the NRA, like, whatever kind of institutions we're talking about, they seem to be trying to erode our faith in any of them, whatever they can. And it really does not help that the media gives us their own reasons to not have faith in them or that politicians give us lots of reasons to not have faith in them or et cetera, et cetera. Like, I just feel like everybody needs to be aware. <laughs> this is, I, That seems like such a small thing to ask for, but an awareness of what is potentially at stake. That's, that's there, Trump, stakes, a, so, <laughs> Trump stakes. Amazing. Trump stakes.
2: <laughs> there's so much at stake that people aren't aware of.
1: So much at
0: Trump stakes. <laughs>
2: sorry this this is a serious point legitimately important there's there's so much at stake that people aren't aware of and if they're not aware of all the little things that are going on how can they be aware of the big things and things are just gonna go straight over their heads go under the radar whatever metaphor you want to use that that's gonna have real long lasting real world implications
0: Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really important topic, and I think you lent a very uh, important perspective on it, coming from sort of the international relations world. Thank you for having me. It's you know it's something that you know is
2: near and dear to my you know to my being as you know as a person in international relations, and you know, I always like to talk about these things with people because the more things you know, the more informed decisions you can make either side of an issue. So. the more, you
0: know, dun, dun, dun. David, put in the, uh, the more, you know, uh, music. I, yeah, dun, dun, David. Dun,
1: David, do it. Oh, you want me to do it with my mouth right David now? David, do it right now. <laughs> or no. dun, 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 dun. something. Okay. So, so where have you been? Oh uh, yeah.
2: Let's see. Um, I've, Beyond the Iron Curtain. Austria. I've been to the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, our overnight train from Poland to Hungary,
1: uh, made a stop in Slovakia. Wait, so were you on a sleeper train like the Orient Express? Like, was it all decked out? Hopefully not like the Hor- yeah, Orient it, Express. There were no
2: murders. Okay. okay so, <laughs> so, not that, like the Orient Express. I Coast.
1: will say that is better than 100% of the movies I've seen about trains in Russia or, or in, in <laughs> Eastern Europe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was it? Yeah, what was it? Uh, ice? Uh, no. What I don't
1: was it? I, I can't remember the names of any of these movies. Oh, that is literally 100% of the movies I've seen about trains in Eastern Europe. Somebody dies. <laughs> oh, there's
2: a, there's a Russian movie called... Um, Oh, what's it called in Russia? It's called
0: say it in Russian. I don't remember it in Russian. Oh, okay. That's the
2: point. But say it in English. It. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's called power. But in the very beginning of the movie, they are on a train, and he goes and has an affair with this guy's wife, and then they fight, and people get murdered. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. uh, this is a new. This is a new okay. cliche. I would like to. I want credit for noticing this. <laughs> well, well folks, that was a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for being here, Tim. This is great. Das Hey guys, this is David. The episode is over, but you know how we do things around here. It's time for some credits. First of all, we'd like to thank Tim Wiley one last time for coming out, hanging out with us all day, talking about Russian espionage, having a great time. Thank you so much. And as always, we're thanking Something Unreal for his Windows XP remix that you hear in our intro every episode. And speaking of the intro, this episode we had a glitched-out cameo by the Red Army Choir performing Farewell to Slavyanka. And finally, thanks to Amaria for their song Lovely Swindler, which we're listening to right now. A song about swindlers seemed appropriate, and I'll take any excuse to add some funky jazz to the show.